How are you getting on? Good to see you again. Welcome to episode 12 of the Kevin Doherty podcast. My guest today is Chris McMahon. Chris has been a guest on the podcast before, and today we had a great chat about plenty of stuff, including movies, classic cartoons, marketing, drinking stories, and our evolving relationships with alcohol. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you helped spread the word by recommending it to a friend or sharing it on your Instagram stories and tagging me at the Kevin Doherty podcast. Thanks for listening. How are you going on, Chris? Very well. Good to chat to you again, Kev. Good to see you, man. Um, sorry for my tardiness as well. It's one of those things where when people are late for something that I arrange, I get annoyed, but I'm the one who's always 15, 20 minutes. I'm very, very bad for that. I'm terrible as well, so don't feel bad at all. I've been making an active effort recently because uh, after 20 plus years, I've had to just realize based on history, I'm not good at estimating time. <laughs> and if I'm always cutting it close, there's a fundamental issue with my decision making um and especially at the airport like you, you take years off your life if you're just trying to cut it close at the airport that's never worth it that's happened to me twice like I, i've missed one flight so i'm trying to be a bit earlier but i have no judgment for people that are a bit late because that's been me for the majority of my life it's tough as well when you realize the planes won't wait for you you're not you're not the center of the of the oh universe God. it's a it's a struggle yeah it's not it's not it's not a bus you can flag down if you're close it's very much yeah, you like the cutter, you don't. Um, today, like the reason that I was a little bit late is I'm in the middle of uh, True Detective season one. What a goddamn show! Great show. It's one of those things that's really driven by uh, characters as well. As in, like people, people always kind of jump to Matthew McConaughey's performance, but on on rewatching it, Woody Harrelson is incredible. So deep. I was gonna say he's one of my. He's become one of my favorite actors in the last ten years, just by slowly, just there's something about him, something very real about him that I really, really like. And like, watch. I haven't seen True Detective season one as well, and I won't spoil anything now. But like, I haven't watched the first two, three episodes, and like you'll say, oh, it's absolutely incredible. Why? What happened? Uh, not a whole lot. Like you could summarize what happened in the space of thirty seconds, but like it, it's very engrossing just hearing them chat hearing McConaughey go off the deep end just psychologically it's terrific it's amazing what Harrelson's done with his career as well because like everybody would remember him for years just being in a sitcom as like the dull kind of sidekick Do you know like not not much depth to his character whereas like in recent years I, I, I think especially with True Detective was the one for me where I was just like what a goddamn actor like I mean the range he doesn't get anywhere near enough credit for his range I mean Kingpin that was Farley Brothers, right? Yeah, he did a Farley yeah, Brothers yeah. movie. Um, like, yeah, he was a sitcom. He was kind of like a bit of a dopey guy in Cheers, I'm pretty sure. Like, he's in Zombieland. He could just play a bit of like a wild, uh, wild American. Bit of a desperado, which is terrific. I want to see him in a Western. Um, Zombieland's a great movie, too, if you haven't seen. But uh, a good idea for people who are struggling in quarantine of what movie to watch next. Something good is like, okay, you're watching True Detective. So the next thing you'd have to watch is a movie with either Woody Harrelson or Matthew McConaughey. 
So let's say you watch Zombieland with uh, Woody Harrelson. And then the next thing you'd be encouraged to watch is another movie with an actor in that. So wow. I'm blanking on his name. The guy from The Social Network. Yeah, um, I know your man. The nerdy guy. Yes. So you know what? You might watch The Social Network because he's in it. And then Andrew Garfield is in that. So maybe you'd watch uh, one of the Spider-Men or something. But it's like a, some way to structure how you go from one thing to the other because if other people are like myself it's very overwhelming now with all this time of what do you start watching yeah it's kind of been a method to the madness yeah structure is the thing that everybody seems to come back to it's like when everything's chaotic it's just like no no i just i just need to get the day right get the day right i'll be able to get the week right but like when when you're not working it's like weeks blend into weekends it's it's weird when you have to like ask your housemate it's like all right what what day is it just tell me what day it is (laughs) I just I just come out of the bedroom I come out of the bedroom every morning like Robin Williams and Jumanji just yelling <laughs> what year is it? Uh, you mentioned there as well uh, like zombie films. I'm terrified of zombies. Like I genuinely think the scariest film I've ever seen is uh, Night of the Living Dead, the original one. I think it was made in like 1968, black and white, available on YouTube. Fucking terrifying. There's just something about zombies. I hate horror. No time for it. No time for him. Really? Can't be dealing with it. So, yeah, I, I only kind of horror I'll watch is like a little bit of a jump scare. And people will kind of scoff at me and say this doesn't count. But I remember I consider Signs a bit of a horror movie because it scared the shit out of me. Um, remember Mel Gibson and uh, Walking Phoenix. So those would give me a bit of a jump scare. They're kind of good. Um, beyond that, I just don't actively want to opt into something that will have me on edge. So, no. you, so you wouldn't even no. fuck with something like... Silence of the Lambs. That, that's a, a bit... Okay, so psychological thriller, I might even consider. It could be both, but anything on that age, like Bone Collector is one of those that kind of mm. blurs the lines. So that's Angelina Jolie and Denzel Washington, I think, where it's just creepy, but it's 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 jump scares rather than a bit of gore or just actively looking for you to shit yourself. I like to be on edge versus actually get the jump scares. Yeah, no, I, I get you. I completely, I completely agree. Like the closest I could ever get to horror, and it probably has a lot to do with it, is uh, one of the first games I played. I remember my cousins uh, gave me his PlayStation, uh, and I was very young. He was like 17, 18. Within like space of a month, he introduced me to like South Park, Grand Theft Auto, and Resident <laughs> Evil. So, is this the original Resident Evil? Yes. Oh man, June nineteen ninety eight. Oh my god, he had. A- bulk of those games and I kind of just I went through them a little bit and it's absolutely terrifying like it's just there's no ambient music needed most of the time all you can hear is footsteps um it's terrifying like it's one of those games that I wouldn't play after a certain time by myself it literally would give you the shit and it, it's it, it's terrifying it's terrifically made and all that but something about those games is the controls were kind of terrible and that like I'm walking down a hallway a zombie pops out there's no turn around and sprint button you'd have to like it's like Austin Powers turning in the hallway. Yeah, you had to like go yeah, back yeah. and forth and back and forth as you're screaming, turn the fuck around. And it just, it's, like, it's like that nightmare you've had where you're trying to run away and you're like in, in putty or quicksand and you're just not getting anywhere. Oh, it, it's aged me terribly. <laughs> and as well in the older Resident Evils, when you came around the corner or went into a new room, the camera angle would always be some bizarre camera angle where it would force you to control them differently. And do you remember how freaky it was as well, where you'd go up to the door and it would just go into that 
black screen, you'd see the door open. Oh my God. There's, there's no over the shoulder. You can't force perspective. Like you had to kind of figure out exactly as you say. So you're pressing up to go into this room. Now you're pressing down and it's, it's, oh, no, thank you. The only reason uh, I mentioned June 1998 as well is because in the opening sequence in that, that's when that is. And I remember me and one of the lads were playing that in my old house and we just looked at each other. June 1998, we were like, what the fuck? <laughs> Too real. Oh my God. I know this is, <laughs> we've gone down a rabbit hole beautifully now, but you, you mentioned, it, I think it was in your first podcast about playing one of the remastered Metal Gear games mm. and talking about Mindfuck, fourth wall breaking. I mean, when uh, Psycho Mantis starts reading your memory card, or reviewing how often you saved it um, and addressing it. So that was in Resident Evil 1. I still remember the first time I played Resident Evil 2. And what happens is uh, every 10 minutes or so, uh, this guy talks to you to the codec or just the radio, and it's like a little FaceTime, and he'll be telling you what's happening. So anyway, it starts freaking out. It turns out the guy you're talking to, spoiler, is an AI, and he starts yelling these things like, turn off the console, turn off the game right now. And I can still feel the shivers going down my back of like, oh, sweet Jesus. It is really weird when like you, ex- you expect a certain thing out of playing games. You're like, all right, now I don't, I'm, I can kind of de-stress when I'm playing that. But there are certain games where you need a bit of relaxation after playing them. They're just, they're too real. They're too intense. Becca can't understand that, that sometimes when I'll be playing a game on the PC or whatever, it's more stressful than my real life. It's like things like Football Manager, where you have to like juggle all these different things. And she's like, what's wrong? I need to win the next two games or I'll be fired. And it's like, <laughs> why do you do this to yourself? Or like build, building a civilization. Like when you get fired in that game, you literally have to like go to fake interviews and apply to jobs and convince <laughs> them. And it really is. What am I doing? I mean, Jesus Christ. You uh you mentioned uh, westerns as well there a little bit earlier. Like, are you into westerns? Is that a genre you enjoy? Not originally. So kind of it's a bit crap before the horse that I've seen more modern ones recently. But like, uh, I, I used to work in a, a, a entertainment company and like a lot, I thought I was a movie buff. And these people kind of educate me a lot. And like, whoa, so there's whole pockets of, of movies and TV shows. And maybe it was you that told me as well about like classic spaghetti westerns. Oh, yeah. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes. So that's it. Um, And I think we talked about this. Why they're called spaghetti westerns. Yeah, what was that again? Yeah, so I always kind of just, without giving it any thought, admittedly, thought it had something to do with gore or like sauce or something just like, I didn't give it one of those, any thought. But it it had to do with either the directors or where it was filmed. Like there were Westerns and they were filmed in Italy or it was Italian directors. One of the two. I'm hedging my bets because I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, I think it was a trilogy, uh, was all made by the same guy or in the same rough location. Yeah, it'd so, be uh, Sergio yeah. Leone, Italian director. And I think a lot of them, like the the kind of Western scenes, the big outdoor scenes were filmed in North Africa. And like the thing that oh. really set the spaghetti western apart from the likes of your american western if you looked at characters in an american western they were very very clean cut it even it looked a lot of the time that like their gun hadn't been used before whereas in the spaghetti western the guys were a lot grittier they were a lot more realistic and if you look at the american kind of the characters the good character was 
intrinsically good. They were just doing things because it was the right thing to do. The bad guys didn't have much depth to them. But the class thing about something like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly is that there's there's really kind of blurred lines. And even if you look at the the original, so like the, the title was originally uh, in Italian. And in Italian, the way it was written was The Good, The Ugly and The Bad. And the word ugly is a slight mistranslation. It would be more not like an ugly in terms of appearance but more kind of what's the best way to say kind of ugly in terms of their character it's like they're kind of a bit more damaged or a little bit more flawed it's a fantastic film that's awesome i mean so the translation of of movies from country to country like that might not be the time it's the same thing something that i got a chuckle about when we were living in spain was i robot so i in spanish is yo so that movie, literally, when I picked up a DVD case, was Your Robot, which sounds like a very different movie. That sounds, that sounds like a Disney movie of, you know, a kid that discovers a robot. Um, but have you, have you seen The Notebook? I don't think I've seen it, but I know the film you're on about. Um, yeah, so The Notebook. What it is, is old couple, and this um, old guy is reading a story to this uh, old woman at home, and she has Alzheimer's. And I thought it was a twist, but gradually it's revealed that he's reading like his diary to her of how they met and they're the young people in the story. So it's called The Notebook. But in Spain, it translates to The Diary of Noah. <laughs> so it just it just seems like, well, it's kind of there on the nose. So maybe it wasn't a twist, but like it's, it's those choices from country to country of how they change the name. Am I right in Spain? Is Jaws just called Shark? I think so. <laughs> I mean, no fucking around there. None of your fancy creatives. <laughs> Brilliant. Let's get lunch. <laughs> Just on the subject of Westerns as well. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, Unforgiven, made in the 90s, Clint Eastwood. It's, it's one of my favorite ones. It's just so, it, like the realism is incredible and it's so dark as well. It's kind of, you could nearly say that his character Blondie in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, it's him, not not definitely him, but it could be him 20 years, 30 years in the future. And like he has all these deep regrets about what he did back in the day. And he, he takes on one last job. That's one that I definitely recommend. It's it's so good. Okay, see, that's what I mean by Crap for the Horse. So I've definitely seen maybe 10 Westerns made in the last 10 years, 15 years, but anything that generation and before I'm either catching up on or just hearing about from other people. So like the, I've seen the remakes of near all of them. So like 310 to Yuma. I saw the one with Christian Bale and Russell Crowe. Um, oh, the assassination of Jesse James is terrific. Oh yeah. Yeah. Your man's brother's in it. Casey Affleck's in it. Yes. Casey Affleck. Yes. So it has hints of true detective in terms of pacing a little bit. Like it's kind of a very slow build, um, very gritty and real and, that's cool. That's really good. Are there any movies in the last couple of months that have kind of caught your eye or worth talking about? Um, last couple of months, no. I've I've kind of fallen off the deep end a little bit. So, like in, in the old job, I was doing like movie marketing a mm. uh, little bit for like Warner Media. So, it was much more on the edge of it then. Like I was signed up to a subscription, uh, monthly subscription. You'd pay and you go to the movies as often as you want. They had a bunch of those in the states in the last few years. So I was going much more often. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Avengers in the last 
two years. Like, I know Martin Scorsese has come out and like trashed the Avengers and Marvel movies, saying they're not movies. They're like theme parks, and I very much take issue with that. Oh yeah. Um, yes. So like not having been around in the seventies, like hearing people talk about seeing Star Wars for the first time and like just the wow feeling and like I I have seen I think all of the Marvel movies in the last however many years, not all of them in the theater, but. Have you, I don't. I don't think you've watched the, the more recent Marvel movies, have you? You're you're a bit no, out of the loop with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot. It's a big investment, honestly, because it's like 20 movies now. The last 10 years or something like that. Whoa. And essentially, uh, the, the the last two, it was split into two parts. So there was Infinity War and there was Endgame. But it was the culmination of like a bunch of different stories all coming together. It sounds quite ambitious and all that. But I mean, it was just really really well made it was the payoff of like so many hours of investment like the whole two-part movie is a balancing act because you have to deal with however many stars however many storylines it was just a balancing masterclass but the big thing of why i think the best of like those two movies when i saw them in theater like i i actually was thinking and saying fuck yeah and i'd, I'd yell and i'd cheer and i've never done that for a movie i fucking hate those people but i mean it was like <laughs> i imagine when people saw star wars have just been like wowed but jesus when like when someone hits someone like you're almost miming it himself like yeah fucking get him because you feel every hit like you're really on board and i can't think of any other movie that's done that in the last however long like i've seen the irishman i think it's absolute garbage yeah i i I wasn't a big fan either and like in terms of scorsese he's probably my favorite director like goodfellas is top five for me I, i i i like it it's one of those weird things where I hate going, what's your absolute favourite? But it changes all the time. My favourite film, I think, is The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. It's the one where I watch it every couple of years and I, I'm just still blown away by how good it is. And the fact that it has such longevity is made in 66. Um, yeah. In terms of gangster films, I think Goodfellas is on a pedestal for me. I just... I. it It's the best thing I've seen and it's the most, it's the most in-depth realistic telling of what it must have been like to be a wise guy in the day but with the irishman the the one thing i thought as well with the irishman is um the pace of it like it was three and a half hours something like that but i had to watch it over two days it, it didn't it didn't grab me it was good but i think my expectation you pushed through it you weren't you you, you weren't you weren't being pulled through it typically you stick to that stuff and i i love scorsese stuff to be like i love good fellas um, like Gangs of New York as well. Like yeah. they're also terrific movies. So it's not some stuff that I absolutely love. But that I watched it on a plane, and the only reason I made it through is because I had no Wi-Fi and I downloaded it on my phone beforehand. So my options were either keep watching it or stare at the back of the chair. <laughs> and it was, it, it, I just about chose to keep watching it. Like I really didn't like it. And going back, if you haven't seen, uh, or you maybe didn't notice the scene where Robert De Niro is is kicking the guy's ass on the street corner. Yeah. Like the, the, the guy who like scolds or hits his daughter, he goes back and he kicks him out the window. It's terrible, that scene. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's barely a beating. Like... It is. Like, honestly, it's terribly timed that you see Robert De Niro will kick and he won't move. And then he'll like flinch. And having gone back and found there's actually a few of those in Scorsese movies. And because like, there's a lot going on, there's a lot of good things about it. But I mean, so the gangs in New York, when Brendan Gleeson is trying to talk Daniel Day-Lewis out of a scrap, do you remember the scene where he's he's up in his shop, Daniel Day-Lewis standing at the bottom of the stairs trying to antagonize him, and Brendan Gleeson has this love, turns on the lovely brogue, 
goes the diplomatic route and says, come on here, we'll settle it like gentlemen. He turns his back and he starts walking in and uh, Bill the Butcher throws the, the hatchet into his back. You, you can see the hatchet bounce off his back. No way. Like a rubber hatchet in that scene, I'm pretty sure. And also like uh, Brendan Gleeson falls down and as he's falling down, he's using one hand to push his back behind him. So Daniel Day-Lewis can pick it up for the next scene. Oh, wow. Like this, yeah, I saw that in the comment and I went back and I can't not see it now going back. Yeah. But like, I, I absolutely love his movies, but like to come out and as an elitist and like trash these things that people love, including me, a big movie buff, like the Avengers movies, like, all right, they've managed to pull off an incredible balancing act and pay off of like 20 years of movies. And like that, that, that scene where Robert De Niro kicking a guy in the corner was, was terrible. So it just does feel like glass houses. I think as well, like when you mentioned like a, a scene of violence in a Scorsese film, like I instantly thought of Goodfellas where Ray Liotta beats the shit out of your man's face with the gun after he touched his missus. Like that was like so shocking, but it was so like, what the fuck as well. And like with the Irishman, even when I was talking about it there, I was nearly defending it slightly just because of Scorsese's reputation, which isn't a fair thing to do when you're trying to like critically assess a film. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's nearly like I'm giving it an extra 20% because it's a director I like rather than just like, if I didn't know who directed it and I watched it, I would have said, yeah, it was all right, but it wasn't, it wasn't any, it wasn't any of the greats. Not, not by a long shot. Everyone does that. Like you go in rooting for it a little bit. Like I absolutely love Christopher Nolan. And in the last few years, I'm thinking back of like, because before the last two Avengers movies, the Dark Knight trilogy, which I'm counting as one, was my favorite movie of all time. Mm. I think that was, it was top notch. Could be beat. I mean, like from one to three, I'd included them as one. I loved them all. And The Prestige, even more so, is my greatest, my favorite movie of all time. Really? Have you seen The Prestige? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is probably my favorite. I love Mindfuck. That's why I love like psychological thrillers. That to me was, was the best absolutely incredible but like some of his recent stuff and i just saw the trailer for his new movie last week and i want to like it but it's also like ah, this this feels very like conception i thought his last two or three seemed to like be more confusing than anything because the prestige tied everything together Mm. it kind of had a lot of crazy stuff but it just felt clean at the end there was a lot of things uh tied up but you had to spend a lot of disbelief for uh, i think inception and tennis tennis I'm pronouncing it wrong. This is his new one. And it looks a bit like um, Inception. But instead of dreaming, it's got something to do with time travel. But like, I can almost see. Okay, so, so that's so uh, Robert Pattinson's playing Tom Hardy essentially. And that this is a hot take. I just thought like that the trailer like two times, and that's what I thought. But I mean, it's one of those things too where I'm kind of graduate. Dunkirk. Dunkirk is the one where that was very polarizing of people either loved it or hated. What did you think? For Nolan fan. I thought it was loud. I saw it in theaters. I thought it was loud. I thought it was good. I know that he made that movie and he wanted it to be like wheeled in and shown in classrooms for years to come. So I think he was going for something a bit different. Did you say you thought it was loud? Yes. What do you mean? So literally, I, th- I think people were praising that he had it. And I'm a pure hypocrite because I have a Dunkirk poster behind me because I worked on the marketing <laughs> for the movie. Uh, but like a lot of people have said that too. That, did you see it in theaters? I saw it in the theater and I thought Dunkirk sucked. I thought like when I, when I watched it, I, so like with Dunkirk, first of all, um, 
with a subject like World War Two, there are so many incredible um, parts of that whole struggle that you could focus on that are more interesting than what happened in Dunkirk. Like in, in terms of like cinematic value. Um, I, I remember I watched it. I didn't even know Tom Hardy was in it. Everybody was raving about Tom Hardy afterwards. I thought it was okay. But it like, I remember when I was watching it as well, I think it was like two hours in and I was like, there doesn't seem to be a lot happening here. And I was like, what, what are you expecting? You studied this. Like I, I had studied it in Leaving Cert before. I was like, I know what happens in Dunkirk. They get out. Hitler doesn't push them. That's it. Yeah. It, it didn't grab but me. But like pe- people rave. People raved that it was incredible. And like, I think there was some really impressive stunt done with stunts. Mm. So I, I, I know he had to do a lot with like camera work on the actual planes and things like that. But yeah, Tom Hardy's performance was incredible. He had to, he had his face covered. He had to look around him. He, I don't think he had, I think he had like 10 lines, something like that. I mean, come on, come on guys. You can, you can love the people in it and just say, well, that was fine. I think it's that thing as well. It's, it's like the emperor's new clothes. If you hear five or six people whose opinion you normally respect about films like oh man watch this now tom hardy's immense in it you're like you're already being primed to come out with a with an opinion because they're gonna ask you straight away what you think of tom hardy we all thought he was class and you're like i suppose he was class i didn't even know he was in it it's a weird thing yeah 100 percent. and like yeah we i think we've stumbled on definitely the best examples i can think of between good dunkirk and the irishman is one of those people Mm -hmm. saying it's absolutely incredible all right, then go watch it again. I don't think you have it in you to watch it again tonight. Sit down and watch three hours of it. It is one of those things where it's just kind of, you feel compelled to go along with it. And it's as well with movies. I'm probably guilty of it with everything as well. It's like, whenever I describe things, I I use the most superfluous terms. Like anything's, everything's either amazing or shite. Do you know what I mean? It's never like, (laughs) it's never something in the middle with me. So it's like, whenever I hear, oh, it's incredible, I'm like, Okay, how often do you use incredible on a weekly basis? Do you know what I mean? Was your shit in the morning incredible? I need some context. But actually, there's one movie that I thought of there where we had a bit of a a disagreement. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes, yes. Um, Like for me, I loved it. It might be... And again, it's it's recency bias because it's the it's the last Tarantino film I watched. It might be my favorite Tarantino film. Yeah, I disagree as I told you. <laughs> so I love Tarantino. Like I, I love Reservoir Dogs. Pulp Fiction was for years my favorite movie. Absolutely loved it. And it's none of those things we're kind of over. I love Kill Bill. Very different, pretty weird. Mm-hmm. But I absolutely love that relative to these others. I mean, and um, once upon a time in Hollywood, it just felt like. So I I think the biggest thing we disagreed with was uh, Brad Pitt. I love Brad Pitt. I love most of his movies. And a lot of people, I think he won an Oscar. Did he win an Oscar for it? Yeah, he won. uh, I think he won something. Yeah, I disagree. I think he should have won one for Benjamin Button, which I I really love that movie. But I think in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's a really cool dude in real life who had to act to be a really cool dude. I thought he was funny, but I think in turn, I, I think Oscars should be dictated on like strain or or what have you and maybe that's bias of like if he if he was an unknown actor and he came out and was in that movie maybe then i'd think better of it but i just happened to get the uh, opinion of brad pitt and interviews and stuff that yeah he's a pretty chill cool dude 
it, it's kind of a, it's an unusual criteria to apply to something because like in the film business casting is so pivotal and so like like if you if you have a character that could perfectly suit what somebody like Brad Pitt already brings it's like a round peg in a round hole do you know what I mean mm. it's like if they cast an Asian female and they had to try and play the same character it's like it's not gonna work yeah it's change for change sake when like everyone kind of knows what exactly exactly what they want it's kind of funny as well um because in that film your man uh Leonardo DiCaprio's character he's fretting about going over to be in spaghetti westerns yes yes <laughs> that's they don't think much of it that's exactly right but like I thought Leo was incredible in that movie because like had to go through all these sorts of things he was having a nervous breakdown every 20 minutes and like that i thought was incredible oh he was he was amazing in it having gone back and rewatched that final scene in once upon a time in hollywood um i love that scene that i thought about that scene like it, it's like glorious bastards the part where he just kind of does uh fanfic rewritten history which i think is terrific of like this is how i wish it would have went and I love that. That's exactly what a glory bastard was. Just like he kind of likes to see these big historical wrongs and just write them the fuck up. <laughs> um, but that it's just a great payoff. That I absolutely agree with. Um, but that scene is, is absolutely terrific of when the, the, the Manson family come into the wrong house and ultra violence just fucks them up. There's a oh my god, it's terrific. And having rewatched it, um, there's a lot more in that scene that I'd give him credit for. So like he's uh, I think he's on acid when they come in. And he's totally spaced out. There's a scene that, like, in the scene, like, 30 seconds in, when they walk in the door, or the 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 the, the main guy walks in the door, Brad Pitt's there, and he's a little spaced out. And he, like, says one or two things to Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt still has a kind of a spaced look on his face. The dog stands up on the couch. And Brad Pitt does this. Like, stay. Not yet. Ah, I'm not a dog owner. I didn't see that. I didn't either. I saw a YouTube comment. I'm not taking credit for any of this. <laughs> but yeah, um, like the dog gets up right away when he comes in and Brad Pitt's kind of spaced out. But he takes one hand off the can and does that and then continues talking. Ah, man, the devil is in the detail. Oh, the control he had in the room is absolutely incredible. That's the, that is the character. I mean, that, that, that's, I love that scene for that reason of um, just the control he had in any situation. I can watch that guy all day. But in terms of actor strain, I think he's done better. I think as well, like what I'm trying to move away from, but it, it's so hard when you're watching a film or when you're talking about a film afterwards. It's like when I was looking at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'd always be having conversations with people. And it's probably the same with True Detective with the two main characters. Like you're always kind of talking about who's better. Do you know what I mean? It's not just let's appreciate both of them at the same time. It's the exact same in True Detective with... Uh, Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey it's the exact same in football with Messi and Ronaldo it's always who's better rather than can you not just appreciate both of them why does why does yes. why if one is like like minutely better does it shit on the other person's performance it's a weird binary thing we do with everything it's like love on Bebo you only have so much to give a day I can only <laughs> praise one of them right now like, you can just praise them both almost equally. It's perfectly fine. I absolutely agree that, like, a compliment for one person doesn't have to be in spite or taking away from anybody else. Uh, you mentioned as well you used to work in the film business. What exactly were you doing? Uh, so the way it was kind of pitched initially before I joined 
is it was Moneyball for movies. Have you seen Moneyball? Yeah, yeah. So it was uh, intended to use uh, like very niche audience insights to reduce inefficient marketing spend. So let's imagine the marketing budget for a movie is $100 million and you want to, that, that would typically be put across billboards in a lot of New York, a lot in Los Angeles, and like the rest will be on digital throughout, again, just US or whatever. And I'm picking these numbers out of the sky. So what it was intended is, is to, rather than, you know, spray and, pay, spray and pray, like target everyone and hope those will convert, identify with much more confidence who is actually going to go see this movie, who will be advocates to tell other people and hit them hard. So the way you kind of determine that is you would look at fans of this or similar movies on Facebook. Do these people have an affinity for other activities or movies? All right, then we expand the targeting to those people. We would have a lot of primary research and survey information to see, all right, moms between 30 and 45 love this actor and this plot line. So when we're serving them ads, this is a thumbnail. This is the 10 second thing we'll show. And then similarly, if we want to get, you know, young, uh, males 18 to 30 to go, they want, um, again, once upon a time in Hollywood, like that wasn't something we were doing, but there's a lot going on there. There's Margot Robbie, there's Brad Pitt, there's Leo. There's a lot of different people will like them. There's the fact that it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. Like these are four different slices of audiences you might go after. Like you might want to portray that it's about, you know, you, you want to target film aficionados that want to learn about the Hollywood. So you kind of show a lot of the, the, the back sets of like driving down Hollywood Boulevard. And this is about the golden years in Hollywood. That's why you want to go see it. If people liked Inglorious Bastards, you put like Quentin Tarantino in their ads, make sure that they knew that that's what it was or things like that. So it was kind of catering the ads to its strengths for different audiences that we determined what it was. And then the second half of that is using information of, okay, what, social media platforms are they on? What type of ads are most susceptible or would they be most susceptible to? So moms might be more likely just to see an image ad and be and buy it versus like younger audiences might need a bit more persuasion. So they need video ads. How much should we pay? So it was taking a lot of the guesswork out of it. And it was just kind of using a much more data heavy approach. And so within that company, like there was, as I said, primary research survey people that was getting a lot of the qualitative insights to see why they like certain things. There was the marketers such as myself who had more familiarity with, okay, where do these audiences live? What are the what are the price points and things like that? And then there was a lot more like data heavy folks that would be pulling all this, all these data sources together that we would work with to try and find the so what. Is there any specific project you worked on the last few years that kind of gives a little bit more of a, a clear example of how that works. Yes. So uh, one that I was very excited to work on, as you can see by the poster of me, was Detective Pikachu. Uh, like a Pokemon growing up. It was a great little 10-year-old inner kid, like, hey, this is what you're doing. One of the things I had to look through in the survey was, you know, what are people's favorite Pokemon? So by the different age demographics, we make sure to highlight the ads to them. Hey, your favorite Pokemon is in this. That was a bit of a, yeah, this is, this is crazy moment. When I was in a meeting, like talking to people, I had to like pause everyone, like, can everyone just take stock of what we're doing? This is, this is great. Um, but uh, if you're not aware of that movie, Ryan Reynolds voices Detective Pikachu. So it's a little bit of a departure from like typical Pokemon. Essentially what it is, is this kid, you can understand Pikachu, who was voiced by Ryan Reynolds, and they go on this uh, adventure to try and recover the Pikachu's memory. Very broadly what it is. Um, the question is, because that actually was coming out around the same time as Avengers. 
So some of the things that we were trying to deal with in reality in that is like, okay, shit. We have to manage expectation because likely the biggest movie uh, is coming, the biggest movie of all time is coming out around the same period within a week of it. So we have to manage expectations and forecasting for that. So that was something that we had to do. In terms of maximizing the number of people that were going, we had to try and get an estimate of, okay, well, I feel there's a lot of overlap between people who will go to this and Avengers. So something that we wanted to do and asked about was, okay, when we were asking people about interest in going, how likely are you to go see Avengers and Detective Pikachu? So if people answer that they're going to Avengers, we shouldn't consider them a lost cause. They might go to both. Like Ryan Reynolds sells movies with his personality. He's got a very, very awesome approach to marketing. And like he's done a lot of stuff. He's, he's gung-ho for a lot of things, it seems like. So pretty much Ryan Reynolds fans, like Lively fans, like the, they're a brand asset in themselves. So understanding, okay, what size is, what, what's the size of the audience that loves them? What social platforms do they live? Let's assign budget to them and identify specifically what ads do they like, which are Ryan Reynolds featurettes. There's a funny little featurette of him talking about getting in character, which is absolutely hilarious. He was saying how uh, I was actually driving to the school to pick up my daughters when I got the call that I got to text Pikachu. And I'm so excited, you know, that I actually, I didn't pick up my daughters, you know, because, you know, I, I sink into my roles and Pikachu, he doesn't have kids. He doesn't know who those girls are. You know, and he's saying all the things and it comes to Blake Lively. who's like, he just left them. And it cuts back to Ryan, who's like, you know, I really tried to get into it. You know, I tried to lose 180 pounds until the doctors intervened. <laughs> so, like, it, it's promoting the movie, but really it's Ryan Reynolds being Ryan Reynolds. So to Ryan Reynolds fans, that's what you push. And there's a lot of information about, okay, the size of a Pokemon audience. That could fork in 50 different ways. So what we did is we segmented that into different generations. There's people like myself that maybe were familiar with the, the, the show back when I was, like, 11 or 12, or familiar with the very first games that came out in Game Boy. Okay, so you hit them with nostalgia. You may have some of the old music or something like that. Uh, for some of the more recent fans, there's a massive, uh, surprisingly older female demographic that plays Pokemon Go. That was kind of a new learning. So you get people that are fans of Pokemon just through the app. So what's kind of coming across here is that there's a bunch of different audience segments within that, and they're all likely to want to go see it for different reasons. So you kind of just dial up different aspects to those people and some of the, the the nitty gritty of what that means is okay what ad do we show them how much budget do we assign when do we hit them is a big thing so those people that i talked about that will go to avengers and pikachu we shouldn't waste our money until a week after avengers has come out because all they'll think of is avengers so it's almost like if we show them a lot of ads before avengers comes out they might have forgotten it they might have moved on or whatever because like hit them hard afterwards so how do we do that if we can get access to retargeting audiences from Fandango of who has, who's a ticket purchaser for Avengers. So we know they've already gone, boom, hit them, swim in the wake. So like, this is just a bunch of the different things that you kind of did to try and do that. And it, it, again, there was a lot of parties of play here, but that movie um, was the most successful video game movie of all time. Very minimally from what me and my team did, like we kind of just were already pushing a moving stone, but um that was a very enjoyable thing to work on because as you could probably tell, very personally invested. I said that a few times to the team every week. I'm like, Hey, like, I want this to work. I, I, I'm so on board with this movie. It's some of the best trailers I've ever seen. I love Ryan Reynolds. I love Pokemon. I don't want this to bomb. I'm personally invested. Um, and just the pleather of different ways that we could make use of data. It, it's not always as exciting and actionable as some of the things that I gave there, but that was a case where, okay, this makes a lot of sense. A lot of the audience is online. So we've, 
we have a lot of clay with which to make bricks in a sense. So it, it was really exciting to work on. It's really interesting the fact that you brought up Pokemon there because last week I went down like what would you call it nearly a 90s rabbit hole i started watching seinfeld i started watching the simpsons i bought a pair of rollerblades and sure <laughs> is everything okay kev it's the it's one of the, it's one of the most impulsive purchases i've i've ever had i think it was because i was in that 90s mindset but i also started re-watching pokemon season one did you get a zach morris denim stonewashed denim jacket I fucked my smartphone out the window and I got one of those 80s bricks. It's giving me back trouble when I sit down. <laughs> but thankfully, Kelly's going to the dance with me. Um, uh, but do, you the, in, do you ever look into his eyes? It's like, like the first time I heard the Beatles. <laughs> Looks like fucking Zach Morris. He's had a six pack since he was like 12. <laughs> um, but yeah, the other thing then was... I started re-watching Pokemon. I I hadn't, like, Pokemon, I think besides The Simpsons, like, The Simpsons was such a... I, I still look at TV as anything can be hilarious, but Simpsons, for me, is the, the standard. Like, classic, classic Simpsons is the standard. I was fucking raised on Simpsons. Like, for me, uh, when I was, like, four years old, I used to tell time by the amount of Simpsons episodes that I could watch. So if my mother was like, it's going to take two hours, I'd be like, yeah, translate it for me. She's like four episodes of the Simpsons. I'd be like, okay, I can deal with that. But uh, so that that's, that's kind of nearly untouchable in my eyes just because it was so formative. I started rewatching Pokemon and like Pokemon was the other thing in the 90s where I was just obsessed with it. It was so... <sighs> It was so intoxicating, the idea that you could have these That's it. little pocket monsters and you could fight them. Weird watching it back. Little bit weird watching it back. Because, first of all, yes. can you really blame lads in Limerick raising Staffordshire Terriers to fight when you have a cartoon that is just promoting fighting animals? It's dog fighting. Yeah, absolutely. It's dog fighting, but like fucking Onyx can blow up your house. That was actually a tagline I suggested for Detective Pikachu that was yelled out of the room it's like dog fighting let's just put that in the poster <laughs> didn't go down too well but like the first thing i'll say is, is the si short thing on the simpsons 100 percent agree i mean i'm in like two group chats over here where we just share random simpsons quotes because nothing holds up like it honestly there's jokes that i've missed like few things were as consistently funny as it was from i think maybe season four through to like season 10 I, I i like just went on a binge there a few weeks ago and every episode that came on i was like oh this is such a good one Oh, this is such a good one. Like, I was doing it for every episode. And I wasn't like, I don't always do that. It really was just a memory of, oh, this is just so consistently funny. Like, I barely laugh every two minutes. It, it really is. It holds up so well. There's rarely a bad scene in The Simpsons. That's it. And there's such a, there's a mix of subtle jokes. There's kind of stuff that's on the nose. It's just absolutely terrific. And um, like Pokemon, it, it is weird. Like, I've tried to understand what it is about it that made it so appealing. And it probably is just the world because it is so super formulaic of what's happening of like, hey, he shows up, he loses, but then he wins. And like, it, it's 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 like tapping into a sense of addiction of like, you got to collect all of these. It probably is kids wanting to live in that world with all these cute little animals or something. I don't know, there's definitely something psychological there that it tapped into, which fascinates me. Because I if, if I, if I was to do an elaborate scheme to make millions, it would be to figure out 
what's the right recipe for a kid's show? Because why is Peppa Pig so good? Why is Peppa Pig so successful and 50 million other ones aren't? What is it about Peppa Pig that kids love? And like, you can't ask kids because they're about two years old and they probably won't be able to articulate exactly what it is. But like, why do certain kids shows work versus others not? That fascinates me. Well, the whole thing with Pokemon as well, apparently, no, I haven't fact, have, I haven't fact checked this yet, but uh, I heard it during the week. So let's assume it's right. And then if it's wrong afterwards, I'll apologize. Apparently, we have Ronald Reagan to thank for Pokemon. Let me explain. So Reagan... Will don't. Be- leave it. <laughs> don't explain. Just leave it there. We'll be right back. <laughs> um, Reagan, when he was in charge, he passed certain legislation that allowed uh, big corporations to market the children through cartoons. And so Pokemon wanted to sell video games. And even the first scene in Pokemon is the Game Boy. It's the Game Boy game, oh, really? which is very weird because I was like, is that I'm trying to work out the timing because in my head that the games came out after the the cartoon, but maybe not in Japan. I think that's right. I think, yes. So the games I, I discovered it when I was visiting cousins over here and they were playing the games. And then I think I went back and I saw the show. And again, like the, the timeline of me seeing it is probably not the same timeline as when they were released. But I think it was some form of games and then the, the the anime but as well the japanese like played the long game in terms of advertising and marketing but like with with pokemon even the pokedex it looks like a game boy if you remember the poker app at the end the poker app at the end is the most hypnotic thing ever i still remembered 70 percent of it which is so fucking bizarre but like um what I meant there about the Japanese playing the long game, I was reading this book called uh, The Culture Code. And so what The Culture Code talks about is that Japan has always been a nation of tea drinkers, right? And so to get coffee into Japan was such a hard sell initially because adults at the time, they didn't have any imprinting when they were younger of what coffee meant to them. Whereas in America, there was your first formative memories of coffee. In France, there was different cultural meaning to coffee. And so they created uh, coffee-flavored sweets for children. Wow. That, that even, that's terrible. Isn't it? But the younger, so the younger generation in Japan, they were being, uh, they had access to these sweets that tasted of coffee so that when they were older, when they tasted coffee, they had an imprint of it when they were younger. And I think in the last oh, five Jesus. or ten years, uh, Starbucks opened their, like, coffee is one of the biggest sellers in Japan, whereas 30, 40 years ago, it was non-existent. And the way they do it is this slow, slow build-up. It's really interesting. I mean, it's genius to tap into nostalgia because the amount of stuff that i like either listen to in terms of music or movies or kind of that kind of like childhood stuff is for the hit of dopamine from nostalgia like if you hear for the, the pokemon rap that you said like stuff like that that you hear and like oh my god i'm transported back so it is kind of setting up to tap into that years later which is almost like a sleeper cell will reactivate your taste for coffee in 10 years the only reason i started thinking of it because like even what you were doing in the marketing business it's 
it's all this stuff that if you had never heard of it, you'd never think of it. But once you explained it, it's like there's such method to trying to get people in. And it, it kind of makes you wonder what other things are we doing unconsciously where we're being guided by certain people with nearly ulterior motives. It's like it's it's all around us. Like, yeah, I mean, the small example of that, like you know, if I had to do it, a bridge summary of what we were doing, like on Netflix, the thumbnails that Netflix chooses to show for different TV shows or movies, they're not one size fits all. They show different thumbnails of the shows and movies based on what you're watching. Like Perks of Being a Wallflower last week, it showed me a thumbnail for that with Paul Rudd, who I forgot was even in the movie, but it probably determined I love Paul Rudd. Like he's a teacher. I think he's got like 10 minutes of speaking or something in the movie, but that's what they put forward. And like that was just an example right then and there. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Um man, we've we've kind of went completely off what we were <laughs> going to talk about today. I don't know how to bring it back intelligently, but uh one thing that I, I really wanted to talk about is like in this lockdown, you're not meeting people, but you're not hearing those great stories from back in the day of like drinking experiences or growing up with alcohol. Cause like alcohol is a drug. It's a fun drug, but some of the ridiculous outcomes from drinking are just pretty insane. Like uh, two of them to come to mind for me straight away from uh, Limerick. I won't mention your man's name and I've, I've got stories about myself as well, but <laughs> These are two of my favorite Lisa, stories. Lisa, Lisa, uh, Lisa S. No, it's too obvious. L. Simpson. <laughs> One of the greatest jokes. I had to say show that. Um, yeah, so so this guy, I was always waiting for the trilogy as well because I was like, ah, oh, these, these are going to come in threes. Because like, these two stories happened within, I think, a month of each other. And I was like, I was just praying for another one that was going to be better because the second one was better than the first. And I was just like, oh, God, please come in. But I never heard it. I'm going to have to talk to him next time I'm down just to see if there was any kind of like fantastic trilogy story. But uh, the, the first one that came to mind. So uh, myself and a few of the lads were out on a night out and we went back to my home house. We were drinking till probably six or seven in the morning and uh the sun was coming up we had the blinds down and we're all just sitting at the kitchen table uh just chatting away and kind of like winding down and we were all kind of all right at that stage but one of the lads we didn't realize how drunk he still was so uh my dad comes in and he he gives me the nod and i'm like well and he was just i think it was like a tuesday during the week so he was getting ready to go out to work and he was just getting his bits and bobs ready, getting his lunch. I think he made a cup of tea. He was probably in the kitchen for less than five minutes and we were all sat there chatting and one of the lads was just staring at my dad. He was like, he was like transfixed in him. And as soon as my dad closed the door to go out to work, he was like, lads, who the fuck was that? And we were all just kind of looking at him. We were just like, sorry? He was like, who's your man there who came in? And he was like, obviously he's my dad can you not see the photos like the family photos on the wall <laughs> and it was at that stage where we were like all right let's let's call it a night so uh the lads rang a taxi and three of them were going up to raheem i think one of them was going out to fedemore but uh they all got a taxi together so i walked out the front door and um i was just saying good luck to them and the first lad who didn't know who my father was at seven o'clock in the morning being in his house the whole night uh, he was the first fella getting out. So it's fully bright now. It's probably eight o'clock in the morning at this stage. So I 
salute the lads good luck and uh they told me the next day what happened so this lad he probably lives 300 meters from me maybe that's probably giving him away but ah fuck it um (laughs) so they're inside in the taxi right and he's in the front with the taxi driver because he was like i'm gonna get out first so i might as well hop in the front and the two lads are in the back and they're like yeah yeah grant and he gets in and straight away so he's probably going to be in the taxi less than two minutes maybe three minutes max so you don't have to make things awkward you don't you don't have to and he looks at the taxi driver and the taxi driver has two hands on the wheel he has one glove on his right hand and the polite thing to do is turn up the radio ask what time are you on till have you been busy usual taxi taxi questions usual two or three uh, ones you hit on and so straight away your man looks at the glove and he goes what's with the glove and the taxi driver's like what <laughs> he's like what's with the glove and so they're going along slowly through the roundabouts and the lads are like ah don't mind him don't don't mind him at all he's drunk he's like no seriously what's with the glove like why why one glove and it gets really really awkward like it's like maybe less than a minute to get to his house and they pull into the estate and he's still talking about the glove. He's like, I don't understand. Why would you wear one glove and not the other glove? Your man pulls up outside his house and uh, my buddy hops out of the car and he turns around to pay. And the taxi driver goes, uh, you want to know why I'm wearing one glove? And he takes it off and he only has two fingers and he starts waving his hand at him. He's like, this is why I'm only wearing one glove. And my friend is like, what do I do? What do I do? <laughs> He has a panic attack Was he outside saying the words? Was he saying, what do I do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do oh I do? God. Lads, what do I do? He can hear you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, that kind of break from reality. It's just, it's ridiculous. That longest like. few-minute journey. He made it so much longer. <laughs> and then, like, the lad said, it was just silence with the taxi driver after that. Like, I don't even think he put on the glove again because the charade was done. Oh my god. But uh this same guy, uh I think it was less than a month later, I'm not too sure of the timeline, but anyway, he was out in Limerick and I think he was in the Icon, which is a nightclub in Limerick, and he was wrecked drunk, like to a point where he was like, Alright, this this is just getting ridiculous now. I, I should I should go home. He was he was at the point where he was too drunk to enjoy the rest of the night, but he was still sensible enough to kind of go all right it's time to pull the plug i'll get home safe i'll wake up no harm done you know what i mean so he's stumbling down cruise street and he gets to o'connell street and he goes over to one of the bank machines and he's he's getting out a bit of money but his card won't work in the bank machine so he's like oh, fuck it anyway i want to get a taxi home no money and he turns around and he sees a taxi in front of him so he hops in the back and he just goes to the taxi driver. He just goes, uh, drive me to the dock road and, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll head out to Raheen. And your man's like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's driving along down the road and uh, just kind of let that out. He's, uh, he's in. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard to tell a story without saying somebody's name. Like. So, so, he, so he's in the back of the car, right? And uh, he's like, he's maybe looking at his phone. He's just, he's, 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 he's in between about to pass out and just seeing where he's going. 
so so the taxi driver pulls up outside uh, the 24 hour shop um down by the dock road and uh my buddy just looks at him and he just goes uh wait here i'll be back in like two minutes and uh strolls into the shop i think he gets a box of fags gets a chicken roll and gets uh money to pay the taxi driver and he comes back out again hops into the back and he just goes uh bring me out to Raheem there and he starts you know looking down eating his chicken roll and he looks up again in about a minute or two and he realizes your man's going back into town and he was like all right there's something weird here and so he he reacts straight away he's like uh here man i'm no fool at all you might think i'm hammer drunk but uh i know where i am you know bring me out to raheem don't bring me back into town like he's like what like who do you think you are your man turns around to him and he goes man i'm not a taxi driver <laughs> what the fuck so what happened was uh my buddy was getting money out and he turned around and just hopped into a random car and imagine inside in limerick Two o'clock in the morning. Your man's probably waiting for his girlfriend to come out of the club or something like that. My buddy oh. hops into the back of the car. Your man doesn't even turn around to look at him. And my buddy just goes, bring me down to the dock road. <laughs> and your man just panics and drives him down. But then he realized when my buddy was inside in the shop that ah, he's, he, didn't, he doesn't mean to kill me. He just thinks I'm a taxi driver. I'll bring him back to town. <laughs> Fucking ridiculous. <laughs> The generosity of that lad, firstly. I know. <laughs> oh my god. Um, so ridiculous, like. <laughs> it was great though, because like those two stories, they came in such quick succession that I was just waiting for the the icing and the cake. But alas, nothing yet. Uh, one that springs to mind for me, and uh, I'll, I'll happily jump on this one because this is one of the few where it's fine to share. It's not the butt of the joke, and I'm not the one doing it is a, it was after our undergrad I, I was back in college so i was living with three random girls i don't know if you know the story i had three random girls and they're lovely girls all of them are lovely but like um for the sake of anonymity which i'm mispronouncing <laughs> let's call them just like girl a b and c and uh they all knew each other but a and b were pretty similar they're pretty conservative girls like they wouldn't be up for the session like as much as like degenerate friends would be but girls see you'll be up for a few drinks and stuff so um like she would kind of be more our speed and whatever um and they're all out of town on the weekends and so had a few drinks at college on a friday night and a few of the enders crew were around as well and so we went for a few drinks um in college on the friday and we came back and we brought two or three um folks with us to have a few drinks back at the house and so where I was living, it was like a bunch of identical apartments all side by side. It was down past Milford. I can't think of the name of them. I'm not purposefully giving ambiguity now. You know my memory is terrible. <laughs> so I would be terrific in a crime scene or just being interrogated because I just won't remember the specifics. But um, anyway, we came back to the house. I was the only resident there at the time. And I had like my two or three friends, whatever, and the two or three folks we picked up at the bar and just come back for a few drinks. And we drank on them for like two or three hours. And we were all inside in the living room with the doors closed. And the way the house was, the only thing you need to know is you'd come in the front door, the stairs are right ahead of you, and the living room was right. So we just kind of came straight in, went into the living room, the door closed, and that was fine. And we came back, and there was no one in the house. I made sure, because like we're having a few drinks, so I'll make sure the girls weren't there. And one of the guys, after a while, is like, here, listen, man, I'm tired. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to sleep somewhere upstairs. I was like, yeah, fine. 
And the first thing I'll say is it was not cool, but that pretty much the guys were just going to crash on the girls' beds while they were out of town. And I was just, you know, it'd be fine to get away with it, no bother. So one of the guys goes up and he's like, uh, somebody's here. I said, what? Someone's in one of the beds. I'm like, no, I checked when we came back. There's nobody here. So I went up and there was a random guy in one of the girls' beds that wasn't there when we came back and he was passed out. So the short version was that he like came back to the wrong apartment and we hadn't locked the front door. And he'd come in the front door, went straight up the stairs, and flattened the face and was asleep. So we were trying to wake him. And I'd actually recognized him from around you well, never spoke to him. But to the point where I kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt that he was just said in the wrong house. (laughs) So I was like, we literally couldn't wake him after 10 minutes. And I kind of just gave up and I'm like, I'm sure he'll wake up in an hour or two. It'll be fine. Um, So everyone crashed, woke up in the morning, like in a few hours and he was gone. So like, I just kind of put down the... To put the comforter back where it was like okay it's fine nobody knows it was good and a few days go by all done and dusted everything's fine and then housemate c who again i'd be closer with and would be up for a few drinks and stuff uh told me about a conversation she in b where they were kind of like i, I think uh i told let someone stay in my bed over the weekend um because like stuff wasn't the way it was so everything wasn't the way it was and the other one went, yeah i think so too and the first one goes, uh, why do you think so? Uh, because I found like half a chip and a can of Coke under my pillow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but what cracks me up about that is that it was the that girl, A, hypothetically, was like the one coming in with the accusations. And B was kind of like, I think so too. And it was B who had like half a chip and a can of Coke under her pillow. Jesus Christ. That's class. It's hard to spin that one. Oh my god, the perfect crime. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, just speaking of UL, just one of them that comes to mind for me. Um, so I think it was uh, fourth year just after the exams, so everybody was you know getting a bit loose, and I think we started drinking at maybe one or two in the day. Whenever, whenever the exams finished, we started drinking early anyway, and we were drinking in a house up in Elm Park. You know the girls' house up in Elm Park? Yes. I was there with my buddy, Mark. And Mark always just loves to ply me with drink and just see what happens. Like, it's he's a, he's a real <laughs> enabler or disabler, whatever way you want to look at it for me. But uh, it's probably one or two o'clock in the day and we started drinking, like, hard cider. Like, 6% shit. None of that bullshit fucking Bulmers. Straight into it. Uh, maybe Scrumpy Jack or one of those sort of drinks. So we started strolling up to the lodge at about half nine, ten. We were there. We were there. No, actually, we were there a little bit later. So it was probably about 11. So it was starting to fill up. And me and Mark strolled in and there was some sort of a, a wicked promotion, some sort of new drink that they were pushing. And there was like a couple of big tables, big circular tables that had huge trays of like sample drinks on it. So there must have been a couple of hundred drinks on each of these two big trays. And at either side of the tables, <laughs> at either side. Of I've the- watched, I've watched enough episodes of Keenan. I've watched enough episodes of Keenan and Kel that I think I know where this is going. <laughs> oh man, it gets, it gets way worse than that. Oh, here it goes. So, <laughs> so there was two girls kind of minding the drinks and uh, promoting the drinks on the night. 
and one of them was wearing uh this is all me being told the story you know what i mean the next day because i was like i don't i don't believe this happened but then i saw photographic evidence where i was like okay it did happen as you said it fair enough i'm a fool but so we walked in myself and mark and we saw these big big tables of free drink and the two girls kind of minded them and so we went over and we started chatting to the two girls and like i was like obnoxiously drunk at this stage but we thought we were getting on well and mark said we were getting on well with the two girls and after a couple of minutes i asked one of the girls uh can i try on your orange wig like it was like this big orange afro wig like really really visible even in a nightclub like luminous orange and so she was like yeah yeah cool and so i popped on this huge orange wig and within seconds i i think i turned around to mark with my arms out and i was like what do i look like or something like that something stupid and i knocked both sets of drinks all over the place like hundreds of drinks onto the ground and instead of doing the honorable thing and turning around and going i apologize i shouldn't have done that i'm not in a fit state kev goes into flight mode so i turned around looked at the situation looked at the two girls in the eyes looked at mark this is all within like two seconds and i scurried away into the dance floor because i was like they won't be able to find me i'll just i'll get away with it and so mark said from his vantage point mark said from his vantage point he was looking at me stagger away because in your mind you always think it's smoother you think you're fucking tom cruise running away in a fucking film but he told me he he saw panic in my eyes straight away and I just stumbled into the dance floor and I completely forgot that I was wearing the big orange wig. So I'd run into the middle of the dance floor and I'd kind of duck down and I'd be like, all right, they must have, they must have kind of forgotten where I am now because I've moved around. I'm like jaws going underneath, you know, da, 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 in, in between the dancers. And then I'd pop up and straight away they're looking at me like I'm the most fucking noticeable whack-a-mole in the fucking... I was just like, how the fuck did they keep seeing me? And I did it like four times where I just disappear again. And he's just talking to the girls going, I really apologize for him. I just thought he's not normally like this. And just every so often you just see me come up very, very slowly. And like, it takes me like 10 seconds to rise up fully. And then just my eyes and my eyes lock with them. And I just go, the fuck? Just straight down again. And like Mark told me this the next day and I was like, that is absolute like, because uh, I had no recollection of it. I was like, what, what do you mean? I was like, I was wearing an orange wig. I was like, that like, I'd remember a fucking orange wig. And then like two days later, he found some random photo in the lodge. It wasn't even a photo of us. He found me photo bombing with the orange wig of some random people. And he just, he just said one word, proof. And I was just like, ah, that just made me reevaluate everything like. And I'm picturing your eyeline of like just poking your head up and like the 10 eyes whatever staring at you. And then every time just following you around the room. Oh, stressful, stressful times. <sighs> oh my God, there's some, that, that, that is a mixed bag, the lodge. Like it's just a big fire hazard waiting to happen. This underground wooden contraption. <laughs> I remember the last night there, this is a quick one that like everyone was refusing to leave because it was one of the 10 times when the lodge said it was closing. So everyone figured it was the last night and um, everyone was staying like much longer than they should. And, you know, we shall not, we shall not be moved, all that. 
my tops were off and everything. And Catherine turns to one of the girls just goes, why is always the fat, gross guys got to do that? I hadn't heard this, but I happened to jump into frame with my top off, like, woo, <laughs> just spinning it. I, I oh, guess that, that was my cue, I guess. <laughs> just on the, like, the subject of college as well, another one that, I don't know, it's, again, it's weird with my drinking stories when I'm younger. It's like, it's like I'm remembering a different character because I don't drink that much now, but it's like, these stories happened, but I heard, I hear most of them secondhand, you know, that sort of way. So I'm always like, yeah. oh, what the fuck? Like, why, why am I that guy in the story? So you're, you're the like, last person to hear it because it's entirely new to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, there's this denial for ages. You wake up the next morning, you're just like, oh, I can't remember any shame. So fingers crossed, there's no shame. So I was in uh, Gothenburg on Erasmus and I think it was like, within the first couple of weeks i went drinking with a couple of couple of irish lads and we ended up going back to like uh some sort of a party but it was a weird party it was kind of like a like a speakeasy party it might have been like a lock-in in some little pub and in this back room there was a really really serious game of uh uh pool being played and like i think there was a lot of money on the game as well so like imagine like one of those smoky back rooms there's like an old school pool table and these two great pool players are playing and everybody's kind of watching them going, fucking hell, this is amazing. This is really intense and there's a lot riding on this. And I stumble into the room. Again, this is all like secondhand information. Apparently, I stumbled into the room and I was like, there was no music. I was like singing my own song and I ran up to the table, rolled fully across the table, like several barrel rolls, <laughs> magically, magically, magically didn't hit any ball apparently because it was near enough the end of the game so i just went straight on the ground and everybody was just like let's just finish the game and then we'll help him imagine being told that like you're just you're trying to make some sort of a good impression in a foreign country and you're just like why why can i not leave this shame alone that one is almost that that's creative it's almost like you walked into the room and like what has no one ever done in this room before at this time of day? It's it's almost looking to just go your own way. I bet no one's ever done. I bet no one's ever done this. That's what I was thinking. I was like, they they can't focus on one thing. They have to focus on me. Ridiculous, ridiculous stuff. Again, it's probably the the smoke bomb effect where you probably thought, I'll go, I'll do this flip, and then I'll be I'll be gone like the wind. They'll never see me land. <laughs> I, th- I think as well, uh, maybe I was like, uh, oh, I don't know what they do in this culture. Do you put like 50 cent down and say, oh, I'm next? No, no, you fucking roll across the table <laughs> like a maniac. Probably piss yourself at the same time so you're marking your territory and then fucking slap off the ground. It's you put your mouth where your money is instead. Like you literally <laughs> put your face on the table and you just do a flip. Oh, oh that was quality. Um, are there any more that come to mind for you now that you've after hearing my shame? <sighs> It's, it's some aggressive screening going on in the back of my mind like um, there's a few fleeting ones I remember uh, in, in Milford Grange there was uh, three of us living together and it was a five bed maybe there's four of us living together there was three of us anyway there was a spare room available and all of us that lived there at the time as, as, as a, uh, me and the lads we all knew each other so we had the full reign of the house it was great and the landlord was um started showing the room to other people 
Oh, actually, you'll appreciate this because it was it was from The Simpsons that we got the idea, <laughs> and <clears throat> we were joking, and I think Stepbrothers Stepbrothers is out at this point. Uh, we were th- joking about the different things that we could be doing when the landlord was showing potential tenants around to like scare off the new tenant. I'm just like, these guys are fucking psychos. I don't want to live here. Because we weren't paying any more or less rent with someone new. So it was fine. We were happy with the way things were. And like in Step Brothers, they don't, the, the Will Ferrell and your man don't want to sell the house. So they like are cutting the lawn in a KKK outfit. <laughs> they're holding a corpse of like, they're, they just died last night. Give us some time. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to promote the bus. It was me and Eamon that were like brainstorming all the different ideas that we could do. And we were joking that if you recall in the episode of The Simpsons where Lisa was worried her brain was turning to mush, that the male Simpsons developed this sort of sport, the pan jousting, where they'd all stand in a circle and two in the middle would just put pans in their heads and just, oh, and they glide. <laughs> so we joked that would be something, that's the dumbest thing we could be doing when people showed up. And then weeks go by, and for some reason, we're, again, Ellen Park, common denominator, I blame them. <laughs> Um, we were after partying, so it's late into the night, we're well on it, and Eamon charges up to me with a curtain pole, with a curtain still on it in his hands, like proper jousting. I don't think there's any additional context, I think he just wanted to do it, but like he runs up to me and he stops, and we look each other in the eye, and we remember that whole pan jousting thing, and we decide, tonight's the night, this is, this is when we do it, remember that thing? Let's do it. And so we literally did that in the kitchen, we put pans in our heads, Face down and then like yeah, dinosaur yeah. style, charged. Yeah, there's a video of it. So oh, Jesus one Christ. of the dozen reasons like I can never be president. <laughs> um, like when I was when I was trying to think of a few stories for me, it, there always seems to be a some sort of theme of like first impressions always seem to kind of fuck me over. Like if I'm in a new context, I'm probably a little bit quieter and I'm maybe taking in kind of the lay of the land or oh, this is how this person is Do you know i'm, I'm kind of a bit more reserved maybe when i when i meet people yeah definitely definitely when i was younger anyway and uh, uh one of the most ridiculous ones was uh when i uh started soccer coaching over in america so it was my first week in america and i was i got the opportunity to coach in this really cool little town called uh, oak ridge in tennessee actually the place where they invented the atomic bomb um, it was like this kind of hidden city uh, it wasn't on the maps for years so it was like a, a really cool little place cool little bit of history as well and staying with a lovely family but I think I think the thing that kind of took me out of my comfort zone at the time I was probably like 20 21 uh, I was working with this guy from uh, England and like I won't say his name but his nickname which was self-given was the big sexy all right yeah uh like uh, quite the character quite the character but i i I think as well this is probably the first time that i had spent any extended time around people from the uk so i was like blown away by this fella in terms of like how how he was acting with the families just how he was uh like i won't go into too much detail about the guy because he's a nice guy but he's just uh he's a funny character and like i think the whole week we were staying together and i was just kind of more reserved you know like kind of like irish maybe versus english i was just that little bit more reserved and Mm -hmm. i was like a little bit timid in the whole situation and from dealing with kind of the stresses on camp as well by the end of the week i was like all right i'm I'm in the mood for some sort of a night 
and it was it was really really hot that week as well i think in fahrenheit it was something around 110 with the humidity so like i was exhausted after the week and acclimatized into america and the family that we were living with they brought us over to one of the other host families and we were having like a, a barbecue there and i think we were watching um one of the one of england's game in the 2010 world cup if i remember correctly and it was like england got a draw i think i was actually rooting for a loss but they got a draw which is fair enough and during the game like i should have i should have just kind of had a bit of common sense where i was like all right don't drink too much that should that should be the mantra of any young irishman when he's when he's traveling abroad don't drink too much but as soon as i started drinking i got that buzz and i think with the heat as well it kind of drove me to a little bit of insanity by the end of the game again this is all being told to me secondhand the next day where i was like oh dear god why why does this happen by the end of the game i was straight on to my do you want to hear my brave heart speech because that's something that i used to do at a period of time in my life where i was like what the fuck am I? A one-trick pony. I could do the the speech from Braveheart, the Battle of uh, Sterling. Ze- Ezekiel twenty-five, Ezekiel twenty-five, seventeen as well. Sam Jackson, Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah. I think I think I think just as a a, a cultural reference, I, I was trying to do something from maybe the Celtic world to try and I was probably trying to antagonize the English as well. So I was like, "Fuck it, I'll break out a bit of William Wallace here." <laughs> so apparently, what happened is I started doing Braveheart outside and everybody was kind of not drunk because americans know how to behave everybody was just looking at me so like 20 people are looking at me doing braveheart starting to take off my clothes and then i see a hot tub and i looked at the hot tub i finished the speech with freedom cannonballed into the hot tub subsequently passed out in the hot tub somebody had to save me and apparently the next morning I woke up on the porch with just the greatest amount of alcohol guilt I've ever had. Because the nicest family oh. in the world. And then they had to tell me how I just became. Because like they would have looked at me the whole week going, oh, this is a nice guy. He's, he's quiet. Do you know what I mean? He's, he's nice, but he's quiet. Very reserved. Those first few days are so weighted in impression. Oh my god! Like if you did that after four months, it would have been a blip. But the fact that it's like the fifth or sixth day, it just feels oh, so much worse. The shame the next day because I was just—it's—it's <sighs> it's always that thing for me. It's like I can never rationalize how crazy I would have been as a young fellow on drink, and I'm always hearing it as I'm looking at somebody else going, "Oh God, why did you do that, man?" But it's me. And thank God the family took it so well. They were so nice about it because that could have got me sent home in my first week. Like, but thank fuck they were just so lovely about it. But that set the tone for me. And like, thankfully, I think I laid off the drink for the next few weeks. But uh, oh my God, just so, so. It's been years since I blacked out, but that's exactly what it is. It feels like somebody else, but like, it's just you very much attached to them. Mm. And it's terrible. Like the blanks. Like, I don't know what it is, but if I had a two-hour blank in an evening, I'd assume that, you know, I, I can remember up to the minute before I went blank. And I remember having a lovely conversation with someone. But what my brain tells me is that as soon as it goes dark, you punch the nearest person. You threw your drink on the next person. But like, whatever's the worst thing you can imagine, that's what was in that period. Yeah. doesn't matter what happened before. doesn't matter what you remember after. 
Uh, I, I love the hot tub bit that you did with your Braveheart speech. Very much going off script at that point. That wasn't in the original movie. I'm very impressed. Does that build up to the speech? <laughs> <laughs> Have you not seen the deleted scenes? No. <laughs> well, he had all the paint in his face. He'd get it off. <laughs> oh man, we love the speeches. All oh, those speeches got me amped. It really was like some Marie Tomb in, in, in some of the house parties too, where they were awesome. But like, you, you got to write ninety five percent of the time. But like, they would because it's they're long speeches. And like a lot of the times, his muscle memory would come out, but sometimes the lines just wouldn't come. And I, you'd come to me like the script supervisor sometimes, because you'd be pacing up and down or just like getting the crowd going, and like the shirt would be off, and you kind of come over to me and then kind of lean in. What's next? I don't know. Oh, God. I always you, you like need I, the occasional prompt. I always used to think afterwards, like, did people enjoy it or were they tolerating it? You know what I mean? No, loved it, loved it. It was requested for all the right reasons. Got people, it got, it got the people <laughs> provocative. <laughs> oh no, it was awesome. The only other story, like from the state, I think this is the story where once, I, and this is one where I kind of nobody told me about it. I lived through most of this, and I had to piece together what happened. But this is the one where I was like, oh. all right, I have to fucking examine my relationship with alcohol. Like, So, again, I think it was one of the times I went over coaching and it was in the first week or two where, again, probably a little bit more reserved in front of a group of new lads. And we were coaching in this rural town in Ohio and we decided to go in for a night out to Columbus, which is like cool college town, really, really nice spot in America. And I think it was around February, so it was cold, you know, cold, cold nights. And we had our night out, whatever, and we were walking, me and one of the other lads, one of the other coaches, we were walking back to the house that we were going to stay in on kind of like the student campus. And he said the last thing that he remembers is it's about five o'clock in the morning and he was saying something to me and all he hears is... And he turns around and I'm legging it down the road. But he was like, where the fuck is he going? And he couldn't catch up to me. So it was just like, all right, Kev disappeared. He doesn't have an American phone. And I don't think he knows where he's staying as well. At least his phone's maybe dead. So it's like, all right, that's probably a problem. And it was cold as well, all right? You have to remember that. Cold fucking that, Ohio. That just, that just reminded me that, that, that there's a comedian, Dimitri Martin, that says, I have cat like reflexes. I'm not very quick, but for no reason out of the blue, I'll just get up and sprint out of the room, <laughs> which very much seems like that's what you did. Oh, man. So I, I'm trying to kind of rationalize it again afterwards. So I think what was going through, my, I had no idea why I sprinted away from your man. Maybe, maybe he wasn't talking about something interesting. And I was like, all right, that's the end of that conversation. Let's see what else is out here in the world. I don't know what was happening, <laughs> but... After I ran away, I probably got tired very, very quickly and started realizing how fucking cold it was out. I don't even think I had a, a proper jacket. You know, I just wasn't I wasn't expecting such a cold bout because most of the time I was in the States, I was there in the summer. So I was like, fucking hell, it's freezing. So the next morning I wake up and open my eyes and I'm, I'm looking around and I'm like, hmm, this is a bit strange. So I'm looking down at a dashboard and I'm like, hmm, this is, this is unusual. So it's bright out. There are people walking around outside and I'm inside in a car and I'm sat 
on a passenger seat inside in the car and I'm examining CDs. This is like the first thing I remember when I came to. I'm examining CDs and I'm like, oh, I don't think these are my CDs. I was like, this is, this is really weird. And I was like, looking around, I was like, this isn't my car. I was like, I don't have a car. I was like, what the fuck is going on? I looked down. Thankfully, I have my seatbelt down. Safety first. Safety first. So I'm looking around like, what the fuck is going on here? Apparently, what must have happened is after I had sprinted for maybe two minutes, I got really, really cold and I was like, I just have to find somewhere to fall asleep. So I started trying random cars in a neighborhood and hopped into a car that was open and fell asleep in a rough neighborhood, all right? So I hop out of the car and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I'm looking around and I just go up to the first house straight away and I just knock on it. <laughs> I think the question that I was going to ask is, where am I? Which is the fucking most bizarre thing you're ever going to hear when you, when you open a door. The first house didn't answer. Went up to the second house. Thankfully, a nice lad answered. And uh, he was like, oh yeah, you're, you're on a student campus in Columbus. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, how far is this town that I was living in? He was like, oh, it's about 50 miles out the way. I was like, oh my God. So he rang me a taxi. Uh, and I think I was like five blocks away from the house. And the taxi driver goes, uh, so do you have cash? And I was like, oh, I'll give it to you when I get there. He goes, what? drops me out again so now i'm outside the taxi in the morning looking around and i have to try and find my way back to the the nice guy who rang me a taxi get back there and oh my me. god he's the nicest guy in the world like he as soon as he opened i opened the door he started laughing and he was like oh man it happens whatever and then we rang a second second taxi driver and negotiated uh a deal where i'd given the money where i got home but i think i spent maybe 120 on a taxi to get out but that, I think, was the straw that broke the camel's back for me in terms of I was like, fuck me. I just I have to start looking at myself as what I am. Just a mess at that time with too much drink. It's oh, my God. Like it's it's what you the state that you wake up in the next day. Like cause the fear is one thing. That's what did me like the mental whatever. But as long as you wake up in the bed, like with, with yeah. most of your possessions, you're all right. But when it's like. And as well, it's like... When you have to act like Bear grills at uh, a certain point. That, in, that in, in an urban environment, I was like, what the fuck? And the thing is as well, I started with some funny stories, but I didn't expect a laugh from this story. I expected that stunned silence where you're like, what the fuck, Kev? But oh, that was, that was yeah. the moment for me where I was like, all right, like anything could have happened that night. And it was a tough neighborhood as well. Your man was like... And you're lucky your man didn't come home. It's, like. it's funny because you're alive. Yes. But like it's a very fine line between a funny story and a, a eulogy. Yeah. Of like how it ends. That final line. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Mel Gibson impersonator was gunned down in. Ah, <laughs> oh, fucked up like. But uh, yeah, that was, I think that was the moment where I just couldn't ignore it anymore where i was like oh my god man you just you have to start getting some sense because at that time as well when you're younger and you do ridiculous shit you can justify it in terms of ah, I'm, I'm like i'm 20 um you know i'm a teenager but at that stage i was like and you're a man at this stage but like you're just you're not acting like any sort of an adult and that's when i started to like reassess everything it is and like at a certain point you're like oh, i love kind of you know living life and getting these stories but like how many more of these stories do you need? Like, do you want to keep doing it? True, man. True. 
Because um, I thought that's honestly it. Like cause the first few years in the states, obviously, it was definitely you know burning the candle at both ends of like a, a lot more of those stories of waking up. Like, you know, I'd stay over somewhere and I'd go to the bathroom in the night and I'd come back. And between the time when I went to the bathroom and go back, I'd be in the hallway. I wouldn't know which room I came out of. I'd be there for like 30 minutes till someone poked their head out. This is a true story. I'd be like, you're in here. I know. I didn't have a clue. <laughs> I was, just, I, was <laughs> I know. I'm just, uh, I'm an interior decorator. I'm just taking in the, in the hall. 30... <laughs> just, just taking it in, you know? I think it's weird as well. Like when I tell especially that story that that story fucked at me for a long while because i was always looking at it and just thinking like like who are you like what why do you do these ridiculous things and i think i think as well being raised kind of like culturally catholic when you tell certain stories it's nearly like a form of confession where you're kind of normalizing it but like especially with that story for me it just it made me reassess what i think alcohol is and what i think alcohol does to me and like since then i don't know i since probably the age of like 25 i dramatically took a step back from drinking like it just i I felt at the time i think i moved to dublin and for the first couple of weeks i just did what any other lad from the country did went down to harcourt street went to coppers and whatever happened happened but it got to a point where the aftermath of a night out was way worse than the crack that i was having on the night and that's where the tipping point kind of came for me where i was like all right this it's not serving you anymore it's like you can't kind of keep playing up to this nearly character where you know when you drink with a certain group and you're the crazy drunk and so it sort of normalizes the behavior for you and you can kind of play up to this stereotype that you've created because i wasn't with that group of friends on a on a weekly or a monthly basis anymore it made me reassess everything and it's that was probably the moment where i started to develop a much healthier relationship with alcohol or at least i understood what alcohol did to me in a sense it's like a, a persona a little bit like I, I think i chat about this people at christmas too um like one of the girls obviously like she loves to have these big existential chats every year around christmas <laughs> we did it at your house there last year and i just get into all these questions and um like that's one of them because similarly i kind of felt that when i came over to being the kind of irish guy in the office and like if there was an awkward pause or an awkward meeting you know, I'd crack a joke, you know, the elbow going or whatever. If there was a there was a party, you know, I'd be having a drink or two to kind of I felt obligated to get the crack going when I'm in no way employed as entertainment or anything of the sort. Not that any of my jokes were landing. But I mean it's <laughs> one of those things of like, no, it can just be awkward. It can be a bad party and I have nothing I don't have to get it going. I don't have to be a wild one. I don't have to do anything. I can have a drink and leave. Um like for you, what's your relationship like with alcohol now? much better honestly i i a lot of similarities of what you were saying there like the blackouts happened much too often it was um shortly before i moved to the states i think i also started to realize that like i'd encourage myself to go out drinking um on the day of the week that it was and a lot of the time it was like riding the wave of good nights that were like three years in the rearview mirror by this point mm. like you, you remember a really good years two three nights ago and you'd almost push yourself to go do it 
because like oh you never know it could be one of those nights and like the FOMO is much stronger at that age and like honestly my nights out now are so much better because like we'll go out we have much more aligned expectations of what it is but like you'll catch up with people you'll tell a few jokes but there's less urgency to make it you know sound every night doesn't have to be a pitbull song be the greatest night of all time <laughs> but in college you kind of you're you're pushing it to be that you're pushing it to be a memory when it can just be uh, a few drinks so much healthier i love a good i love a good drink now and like i'll even have a drink in the evening at the house from this quarantine that i rarely do before and i fucking love it have a single drink and just wind down a little bit so a much more uh, broader relationship with alcohol i think but much better i think as well for me like the type of questions I started asking myself was like, okay, when you drink alcohol, what feelings do you think it's bringing you or why, why are you drinking? And it's like, if, if you kind of peel it back, the things that you, you hope to get out of alcohol are things like connection, uh, less social anxiety and being able to maybe meet new people which which can be challenging sometimes when when maybe you're a little bit more reserved when you meet a new group and i think as you as you get older and get maybe a little bit more self-esteem self-worth maybe self-confidence you don't need that crutch as much but it's only when you have a look at it and you think okay the, the things that i'm trying to get maybe i needed alcohol when i was younger but as you get towards your 30s i just found that you can get them in a way where you can actually remember the fucking night. Yes. And also when you're younger too, you're almost subconsciously on a mission to expand your social circle and nights out and like get stories. Mm-hmm. Like you're collecting, collecting friends, you're collecting new people. You kind of want to know as many people as possible, be the men around town, want to get new stories. And like, I'm very happily turning into the, you know, the more curmudgeon of, I have enough friends. Thank you very much. <laughs> And like you can go out and like I'll happily chat with new people. And sometimes on a weekend, if we go travel somewhere, we love chatting with new people. But like for the most part, no, happily just go and chat with the people that I came with and talk about old stories. And like the few drinks will make it a bit funnier. And like that's kind of it. But like very fortunate the folks that we hang around with now are all very similarly minded of no one really wants to go clubbing. All we want to do is sit around and either sneer each other, take the piss out of each other for the laugh, tell a story, which will get a laugh. Or just kind of, that's it, just facilitate some laughs. And that's absolutely ideal. And the drink is usually just a a way to augment that versus the only way that we can do that. So much better relationship, I think. Do you feel as well, like, as you kind of understand yourself more, you feel less of an urgency to impress new people to say, oh, I'm this guy. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm just wild fun all the time. Whereas, like, once you become a little bit more... Uh, comfortable in your own skin you don't have to do things you don't have to superfluously do things to other people to try and get them to like you it's probably one of the best realizations i think i've come to and i think any young adult can come to around that age of like don't try so hard like this yeah. great life advice everything fine don't try so hard and obviously i could say that to 22 year old version of myself he wouldn't hear it but like it, it just goes so far i'm like go out and do whatever you want to do because it, it does come across on some level that you're trying. You don't like it. They don't like it. Nobody likes it. Like people that feel like they're kind of trying or putting on airs or whatever. And it's just more real. if like you'd say something snarky that's real. And like you've better chance of like making a friend for life. They find that funny than, you know, having 50 million people that know a version of you versus 
just being your snacky self to like four or five people. I think as well, like to some extent, being raised in Ireland, you're nearly a victim of your culture where it's so socially acceptable. Like the idea of telling somebody you blacked out on a night out, people don't even bat an eyelid. They're just like, oh, sure, I do that every week. Like it's what really opened my eyes was the first time I went out in America and I was talking to younger people about how they drink when they go out. I was shocked where I was like, they don't need to get hammered to have fun. Like they're, they're maybe a little bit more confident in themselves. And it's a, it's a cultural thing. Is is it Grand Prix or what's the sport where before the actual race starts, they'll have those like preliminary laps where they get to get up to a certain speed. Yeah. yeah, Formula. That's almost like drinking. That's almost drinking around you to pregame. If you're not either in a certain gear or you're at a certain criteria, like you're not ready for the night out. You're going to get caught behind, but you have to catch up and you'll overcompensate. You'll do shot. Oh my God. I had not said the term catch up in maybe five years when it comes to a night out or meeting up with a few friends. It's fucking insane. And as well, think about the way we used to talk about a night out. We'd, you'd never be like, uh, oh yeah, Kev, uh, do you want to go out to this place? We'll go here. We'll go there. We'd always say, do you want to go drinking? So drinking was the primary part of the night. And the, the actual night out was going to be influenced by the reason for the night out. It was always, we'd phrase it as go drinking, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like go for a drink versus go drinking. It's subtle, but I think it is. With some people, there's a big difference. And I think a symptom or almost a quick way to identify what side of the fence people fall on. And this is very, very subjective opinion of mine now Mm. is those that are obsessed with where you go next or where you go so if you meet a friend for a drink in a bar and you're having a good chat like all right let's go to the next place you can very much tell that like okay the crack is not 90 for them here they don't like the vibe i'm very much that like you you make your own crack it is what it is yeah and like if you can't make the crack here you can't make it in the next place it's like a gambler at a table losing more and more money they'll go to the next bar that's not it that's when they pay for a club they don't really want to go to when there's 20 minutes left in the night out and it's kind of the quicksand thing again. Like it's a very quick way to tell if someone, you know, if they're goal oriented to the night out or if they're just kind of experience oriented. Yeah, that's so true. And as well, like what I always found found when I was younger, if your sole objection or sole objective on a night out is to try and pull, they become grim nights if you don't. You know what I mean? Where if you can go out and enjoy yourself and see what happens, it it's so much more of a pleasurable experience because you're not putting all of this expectation and pressure on you where it's like, oh, something has to happen, something has to happen. Ah! Yeah. But getting your numbers up. For who? For what? Yeah. Go have a drink. It's insane. But uh, much better now these days. I think, yeah, because I'll happily go for a drink with folks and just like reminisce and then go home and just great. It, it's less that thing. It's less goal-oriented. It literally is. Let's meet up and have a drink and just whatever. So l- love a drink now. Chris, man, an absolute pleasure as always. I'm conscious of time. I know I like I was the one who started 20 minutes late, but uh, as always, man, fucking pleasure. No bother. I told you I'm, I'm contract work now, so I'll just invoice you for the for the for the time. Not a bother. All right, man. Thanks a million. Peace. All right. Great check it.